Hello and welcome to Balance City with your host, me, moi, Danielle. We're going to talk all about the juicy stuff, about relationships, about business, about mental health, all the things when it comes to the journey of life, right? And what you'll see along the way is no one's perfect. We all have our shit, (laughs) to be frankly honest. And I am so thankful that you're here to be on this journey with me. And I'm going to have some epic guests sharing their story. And I just cannot wait to get this started. So let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome back. I am just like super excited because I am sitting down with this incredible, incredible, I'm going to say light worker. Because if you guys knew a couple episodes ago, I had um, somebody named Derek Jameson on the pod. And this beautiful woman, Sheil, who I'm sitting down with right now, has similar, similar ideas of what Derek does. So Sheil, please share with us a little bit about yourself. I'm Sheil. I love this. I love you. I think you're a light worker too. So <laughs> know that you're a part of the tribe. Um, so I am a holistic healer. I am a light worker. I'm a medical medium. And what that means is I feel people's body pains and like what's going on before it even happens. And like I channel the remedies for them. And I've also studied Ayurveda, um, acupressure, acupuncture, all the things, but usually the best stuff that comes through is stuff that I channel. Um, and I also do intuitive readings. I am a now. I also do. Um, I uh, sorry. I'm like blah blah blah. No, that is fine. Um, I'm an emotional intelligence teacher for children, and so I've developed my own course because a big part of my mission is like helping kids understand what it is they're going through and helping them work through the motions of life. Mm. Because I feel like a lot of the problem of today is that we always do damage control but we never do preventative measures. So I feel like if you help kids understand themselves and love themselves and learn really how to love each other and communicate effectively and know that it's okay to have the whole spectrum of emotions and understand how to utilize them, not avoid them, utilize them and understand them and sit with them and not be afraid of them, we wouldn't have as many issues as we do today. So that's kind of what I do with kids all the way. I work with like three-year-olds all the way to high school kids. And we kind of go through those motions of creating a bridge and like knowing what mindfulness is because I kind of, I'm a meditation teacher and breathwork teacher. And I feel like a lot of these people are doing breathwork and mindfulness with kids. And they're when you ask a kid like, Oh, like what is mindfulness? They do it every single day. They're like, I don't know. The teacher closes the door and we got to put our head down. It's weird. <laughs> and I'm like, you do this every day. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, so I know you, you shared, like we've, we, 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 we know each other because of the incredible app called Clubhouse. And you shared your incredible, incredible story in, um, Brit's space movement group. And I wanted to bring you on my podcast because I just like, obviously I love you and you have been through so much and I know that you can help so many other people, definitely women that have listened to this podcast. So um, kind of share a little bit about what you shared in, in group. Like um, like how, how did this whole like holistic healing ha- like come to fruition? Like what kind of things happened in your life? So 
I feel like I always say I've lived like 15 lifetime movies mm. in one mm-hmm. because they're completely separate and they're interconnected somehow, but it's intent. So I grew up and I always say I, was, I grew up always waiting to be happy, right? Like even as a kid, you know, and it's, I was definitely like sensitive, you know, and it's funny because I'm so outgoing now, but as a child, I was really shy. I was pushed into doing dancing and singing and doing all these things. And it was in the Indian community. I was always a performer, right? Mm. was always pushed on stage. I was always known as the pretty Indian girl. I was always, but I was, I was also hated for that, right? Because I was too seen in the Indian world. Mm. And I also don't think I was naturally outgoing. I think I somehow made myself outgoing because I was pushed into it. And then you go into school and I, in my school community, being Indian was weird. I had a very big high, uh, high school, elementary school. I have a big township, but most of the kids are white, predominantly Italians, you know? And so I was one of four Indians in like my graduating class. I graduated with a thousand people and I was wow. one of four Indians. And so there weren't that many. And I think when I was younger, there was a lot more racism and racism mm-hmm. that I didn't quite understand. Like my bus driver would drop me off at the wrong side of the neighborhood. Teachers would be rude to me. I you know, like I said, I was a singer, but they wouldn't let me do the talent show when I was supposed to do the talent show. And there was just a lot of bullying from kids. And I was just thought, I just thought, I wish somebody would like me and I wish somebody would notice me in school. And then when I went to my Indian community, I just wish that I wouldn't be seen too much because they hated me because I was seen too much. And it was such a weird dynamic as a child to understand like, where do I fit in? Am I supposed to be louder? Am I supposed to be quieter? Am I supposed to be, who am I supposed to be? Because both sides are wrong, apparently. And Mm. I'm just wrong being me. And so you know, I went through that and I developed a really bad eating disorder by the time that I was 10. Um, I didn't even know, like, I, I think about it now and it breaks my heart because I was way too grown for a little kid. And I, I was going through depression and being Indian, you weren't really allowed to be depressed, right? Like that's not something they talk about, know about. And I remember, you know, people would tell me like, stop it, she'll snap out of it. You're making everyone crazy. What are you doing? And like, I will say my mom tried to be supportive. She tried, you know, like as much as she could, but she didn't get it, you know, like they don't get it. And like the therapists were bad, whatever. Um, and then I was sexually abused by someone that I saw as a father to me. So my father is wonderful. He is such a good guy, but he's like a big bear, right? So Mm -hmm. as someone that's depressed and sensitive, my dad having a hot temper was really a lot for me. And he was, he's so good. He spoils me every single day. Like I always want to reiterate that, but as a kid, that's, that's what we always have to notice, right? Just because you come from a good home, depression can still hit because the way you need to be loved might be a little bit different, which is why I love working with children because just because you have like a very good community at home doesn't mean it's good for you sometimes. And so I think also I was gifted back then and didn't know. So I was probably feeling everyone's stuff. And so I had a lot of emotions that I didn't understand. So I really liked my uncle. I really liked him. We used to, you know, we did trips together, whatever. And then he sexually abused me when I was like 12 years old. Um, and it, it was earth shattering, right? You know what happened. You don't, mm-hmm. you, you write it off, right? You're like, oh, it wasn't that big, big deal, right? It wasn't it bad, but you know, it was that bad. And then I ended up telling my parents and everyone covered it up because um, we're in the Indian community. We didn't want to ruin his life for what he did to me. And we didn't want to ruin his family's life for what he did. He's still around. I have done like, I, I, I've forgiven him, I guess, to an extent because I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm very spiritual. And I believe in soul contracts with people. I believe that this was the way that it was meant to go. And so obviously I became even more depressed and I felt even more unseen. I felt even more unworthy. I felt, and so I would, I, when I was 13, 
I was just so depressed and so suicidal. So my parents allowed me to move to California with my uncle, I, my, my mm-hmm. dad's brother. Mm-hmm. And I loved him to pieces. You know, he was wonderful. I stayed there for a few months, but I was still depressed. You can't run from your depression. And it, right. obviously the depression hit. California is wonderful about mental health. So they put me in a really good mental health facility where they were so like, it was so holistic, especially for back then. Like I'm 33 now, 13 was a long time. It was 20 years ago, mm-hmm. you know? And so they would did a really good job, but the doctor there over medicated me. So I'm 13 years old. I'm off prescribed to three Xanax a day, Ambien, Clonopin, all the things, medi- like Wellbutrin, whatever. I come back from California and I'm still depressed. You know, nobody, like, I don't know what to do. I'm, I just, and everyone's telling me, what a burden I am. Like, oh my God, you wasted so much of your parents' money. You went to California, you came back, you did this, you know, you're being homeschooled. Like, why do you behave like this? And so now I'm suicidal. And now I believe if I just die, everyone's going to be so much happier. And this is why I hate the mm-hmm. rhetoric of like people who are suicidal are so selfish because most of the people that are suicidal do it because they think people will be better off. And that is literally what I felt. And I took every medicine in that tin. I took all of it. And like, I was really tiny. So I was actually the same size now as I was back then. But like, I might be like 115 now. I was 80 pounds back then because I had an eating disorder. Took all of it. Um, my mom's really intuitive and she like called the ambulance I got. You know, I got my stomach pumped right on time. And, you know, I was in and out of eating disorder rehabs. And like, they, you know, they kind of like brushed it under the rug. They're like, oh, well, at least like I wasn't suicidal again. And at this point, I'm like, oh, my God, like, let me just get through high school. Like, let me just get through high school. And when I get to college, I'm going to be better. Like, when I get to college, I'm going to be out of this situation where I'm bullied in school and, like, bullied in the Indian community because I'm too pretty, whatever. Like, it was, it was so much. And I thought, okay, let me just get to college. Like, let me just get there. I get to college. Now Indians being cool. Now Indian scene is cool. I'm getting all the attention in the world. I'm making all these friends. I'm in my best self. Everyone notices me. And sure enough my best friend in college ends up raping me and I like, didn't know what to do. Like it was so horrific. And like, I got taken. So when I went to, you know, get the rape kit or whatever, um, I, um, they took me out of the hospital into a ringy ding hospital so they could tamper with the rape kit. They also had detectives that were working with the university so that they could manipulate it because the guy who did it was a baseball player on the team. So they wanted to protect him. I had no idea. I thought you don't know these things. You only see this stuff happen on TV. You have no idea. So they took me out. Then they started like I left school. I thought I was protected. You know, I left, I left college to take a break because I did. Okay. So what had happened was I did um, a judiciary system in the college. I told them the story. I had bruises all over. There was no way that you couldn't tell. Right. So they unanimously voted that he was going to be kicked out of school. So I left school for a semester to kind of heal myself. I come back the next semester. I go to class. He sits behind me in my class, stalks me on my way back to my, my dorm room. I'm like, what is happening? Why is he here? The school's gaslighting me. I'm getting stalked by the old, like all the baseball players. Every time I swiped in somewhere, the police campus would stalk me where I was as a way to harass me into silence. They would call my parents. They would tell them lies about me. Like it was so horrific. And they like told me all these things like, oh, wait, we didn't even have to tell you that he was back in school. You're just a witness. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> like I and like, of course, because I had gotten a lot of attention in the first semester, somehow the girls that I was friends with 
were happy about it that I couldn't even go to the bathroom alone because they would write, you didn't get rape bitch on my door. I needed an escort to go to the bathroom. I needed, I was, it was mortifying. I had people that protected me, but I also had people that hated me. And like, it was just so, it was so much. And like, I didn't know how to deal with it. And then obviously like you're in like a fighter mode at this point. You don't even have the chance to grieve. I end up meeting one of the cops on my case was actually a good person. And she's like, not again. When I told her, she introduced me on security on campus. It's like off campus nonprofit. And so I work with them. I, they end up taking my case. Temple did so much wrong that they thought I was stupid. And I was so smart that I put attention to every little thing. I got everything on paper. They gave me, um, what you call it? They like, they, they gave me their lawyers and the lawyers worked with me mm-hmm. and they, we did all this stuff. We did all this reform. I like met with Senator Arlen Spectre. We did all this stuff and the reform, they kept sending it. And at the first they were like, no, there's not enough evidence or whatever. And then we did it again. And the second time they did it, that was when reformation was granted. I worked with Office of Civil Rights Education Department. I did all this stuff. And this was like now three or four years later. And I was just in fight mode working with them and doing what I needed to do. And then I get the message like, because of you, a lot of people won't go through what you went through because state schools never get in trouble, but because a lot had happened to me, they were able to get in trouble. And it's like bittersweet. Like I'm happy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that someone like me went through that because I would fight for it. But I'm also like, Oh my God, I just went through that. And so I'm getting this call and I just break down because I thought once that justice is achieved, I'm going to be happy. I was so empty. I was so empty and I didn't know how to deal with it. I like left that school. Obviously I went back to County college. I like end up going, like doing what I need to do. Um, I changed my major and I end up doing communications and I'm like, you know what? Screw this school. Screw this baseball player. I'm going to be a fucking sideline reporter. Excuse me. I curse. I was like, I'm going to do it. Totally, you can curse on my, <laughs> I'm going to be the one that's famous and you're going to kick yourselves in the ass for mm-hmm. that. Like I was so, and I, you know, I got a job with Fox sports. I met everyone. I was like networking in the area um, and I was on my way up and then the Penn state scandal happened. And when the Penn mm-hmm. state scandal happened, it hit me so hard because it was exactly what had happened to me. And I, that, they, and everything came rushing back and it dawned on me that I'm pursuing a career. I don't care about, I'm doing all this stuff and yes, I'm being successful, but I don't like it. And again, I'm living for other people. I'm doing things to mm. spite people. And I just broke down. I ended up telling the people that I work with, like, I don't think this job is for me. Like, thank you so much. I ended up becoming, um, a preschool teacher on a whim. And sure enough, because I was like, I, I'm so used to doing things, you know, I was a double major. I needed to do things. I was working with all this stuff. And now I had to fill up my time. When I was a preschool teacher, I was working with foster kids. And while working with foster kids, I really healed myself because I'm watching them, but it also triggered me, right? Because there's these kids that are mm-hmm. going through hell. And I realized I would kill for them. And I was like, wait, why did anyone want to kill for me? Because Mm. now something terrible has happened to me twice. And both times, everyone took the side of the guy that did it. Not me. And I had to fight for it, right? I had to forgive the first. Mm. And the second, I had to fight for justice. And like both times, I was villainized in this situation. And here are these kids who were, you know what? Sometimes they're really tough to deal with. I'm not going to lie. They're really tough. Mm. And I would kill for them. I was like ready to go to bat. I love them with my whole soul. But I think it was good to feel that because I realized the trauma that I needed to work on. 
And so I was able to communicate what I needed because I realized a lot of the reason I wasn't getting what I needed is because I didn't communicate it because I had no idea what I needed because I was just fighting, fighting, fighting to move forward. And as luck would have it, I graduate and I'm like, okay, I like this teaching thing. Let me get my teaching certifications. As soon as I graduate, I get sick. I end up getting, um, I had a vocal cord. I had cysts on my vocal cord. So like, I couldn't really speak for like six months. I lost quality of my voice. My doctors gave me too many antibiotics. So I ended up messing up my stomach. So my stomach, the organ, like actually got swollen. Like I end up getting chicken pox for the fourth time. Like that's not even possible. I don't even know how it happened, but like, this was in a three month span. I broke my ankle standing because I had lost too much weight from the whole situation. And I was like, what is going on? Like, what is going on? I like literally couldn't move. I was in so much pain that if someone even sat next to me and I moved on the couch because everything was so inflamed, I would scream and cry. Like there was nothing I could do. And so I end up getting vocal cord surgery. My stomach ends up getting worse. I'm on bed rest because I had lost too much weight. My stomach was too damaged. I end up having like a diet of like insured, whatever else, like just trying to get my weight up so I can stand up again, quite literally just stand. And like in this time though, I was able to do healing because for the first time I wasn't able to run. I wasn't able to do things and I wasn't able to like even speak to divert my attention mm-hmm. because I had lost my voice. And during this, I started meditating. And while meditating, I realized Oh my fucking God, I was never crazy. I was always gifted because way back when, when I was depressed, I used to tell my psychiatrist, I hear voices, they don't tell me to do anything. Like they're just laughing and stuff. Like I remember telling them, they're like, okay, she all like, but I was depressed. So now I'm borderline personality. I'm eating disorder, whatever I made, whatever. Like, but right. when I was meditating because I couldn't move for it, I started learning the Bible through my dreams. I started learning all these things. And so I started to realize how gifted I was through that. And when I started leaning into the gifts, I started meeting people serendipitously along my path that could help me with my gifts. So I went to California again to stay with my aunt. She's such a gem. She always takes me in when I'm going through stuff. And like, when I was there, I went on a flight to LA and there was a girl that was familiar with this. So she helped me with my path of understanding the gifts. I come home from California thinking I'm rehabilitated and sure enough, my, I have like degenerative disc disease as soon as I get back and like L4, L5 issues. I had ovarian cysts, so I couldn't walk. And I think this was the beginning of the MS, but I had no idea, mm. but like, they didn't know what to do. So they were like, maybe we need neurosurgery. Nothing's working. I'm in an enormous amount of pain. Um, now we're in 2013. I end up going to Texas to a spiritual thing where my friend, Alok, who's so wonderful, flies me out to Texas. Like, I know someone that can heal you and you need to be healed because you're gifted. And I want to help you. So he takes me to this woman. I'm sorry, I'm going one for a line. Is this too long? No, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. Because <laughs> we're going to, I want to, I'm going to scroll back a little bit after you're done. Because I, I want to like give those people that have dealt with the similar situation that you have dealt with, like, I, I'd love for you to give them some tips on like, just keep going and we'll, and, and I'll, okay. and, and I'll ask the question. <laughs> All right. So he flies me to Texas and I end up getting acupressure there from a woman who heals people out of her house for free. She is wonderful. She like had paralysis. She healed herself. She's helping other people and people donate money for her charity. So it was just like a beautiful situation. And at first she goes in and she's like, Oh my God, like you look so fine on the outside, but like everything's messed up. Like, how are you even standing? And so she's doing pressure points and she's like, Oh no, like you're gifted. You could do this too. You're a healer. I'm like, no, I'm not a healer. I do this like prophecy stuff. Like I'm hearing stuff from the Bible. Like that's not really, she's like, no, you're gifted. And so while I'm there, I'm realizing while she's working on other people, 
that I knew what the pressure points were, even though I knew nothing about pressure points. Like mm. I was like, someone would sit down, I'm like, oh, you have to push this pressure point. And she's like, why'd you say that? And I was like, I don't know. And so like in her working with me, it activated my own memory of being an acupressurist somehow. So she trained me a little bit. I leave Texas. So at this point I had polyps in my sinuses. So I had this thing called AERD. So they fit like I had no sinus cavity. And so she was helping me with my sinuses too. She helped my back. My back got so much better, but my sinuses would not quit. I'm like, I'm getting surgery. I'm going to get surgery. I can't do this. I'm not breathing out of my nose. It's terrible. She's like, no, she's like, you're not going to get better from it. You're only going to get better from holistic stuff. But like when you can't breathe from your nose, you are not waiting. Like this Mm. was months and months and months. I get surgery. Short enough, I have a weak recovery and my nose closes up again. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Are you kidding me? And like not breathing through your nose is terrible. So anyway, I go to India and my uncle's employee knows another woman that heals people out of her house for free. And she lives right across the street from my uncle. And so I was going over there and I go there and at first I'm like, my nose, blah, blah, blah. And so she waits a day and then she goes, you're gifted. She's like, you're not, you're not sick. You're gifted. And this is a part of your gifts. I've been waiting for you. So she had been chosen by someone to teach her the healing gifts. She had a niece that she was gifted and she came to her and then she was like, I knew you were coming. Like, I'm going to help you too. So she ends up teaching me all these different things, like all these different healing modalities. She helps me understand my gifts. She's like, you're not crazy. This is something that's coming up. And when you start really coming into your gifts, your sicknesses will go away. But until mm. then, the sicknesses are going to stay. So she's training me. I stay with her for like six months. People are coming in. I'm learning how to treat them with like, I have no idea how, like no idea where it came from. Um, I train with her. I end up getting my Ayurveda yoga therapy lessons. I go to Kerala for a month. I learn it and I'm in this Zen place. And I'm like, I'm never getting sick again. We're now in May, 2014. Uh, never getting sick again. I come home May 10th. Sure enough, 10 days later, I have my first MS flare. I was sicker than I've ever been my entire life. Like I go to the hospital. I'm like at first I was like, oh my god, my energy's just off. Like maybe I just need to do like Reiki. No, no, I wasn't. I took like it was really bad. I ended up feeling like someone was touching my face. I got to go to the hospital. I had never been overnight at the hospital, and I was there for two weeks. And in this time, I lost my function to walk. Like all this stuff is happening. I'm getting like all the testing. It was awful. And I they gave me like three thousand milligrams of steroids, so I blow up. And mind you, mm-hmm. my eating disorder now gets activated because my sweatpants don't even fit. Nothing fits. I'm crying. I'm not walking. I'm crying. Thank God though, that my, va- like my vanity took over that. I wasn't noticing that I wasn't walking because I didn't walk for two months. My mom had to shower me. People had to hold me. I'm using my grandmom's walker to walk around the house. Like I don't even know that I was processing what was going on. And I remember being so mad. I was like, how dare you? And I'm like yelling at God, like, how dare you give me these gifts and make me so sick. I'm done. I'm not talking to y'all anymore. Like nobody talks to me like so mad. And then, um, and sure enough though, I, I, you know, I, I got out of it a little bit. I go back to India. I meet another healer. I do more healing things. I'm slowly getting, you know, stability in it. And I learned like pranic healing, Reiki, I'm meeting different people. Um, It was so cool. I come back from India. Um, There was an MS charity event on the day of my MS anniversary. I end up going to that. I end up becoming a co-chair of it. So I end up co-chairing an MS charity event on the day that I got diagnosed every year. Like it was just so empowering. Like I knew God was on my side. I knew the universe was on my side. 
I go back to India. I meet an Ayurvedic practitioner who is the best Ayurvedic practitioner in the world from London, who happened to take me under his wing and really helped me understand it. And he's like, look, he's like, you're gifted. Like you need to learn how to be selfish. You need to learn Mm -hmm. how to take time for you. You are giving so much to everyone else. And he doesn't take any clients anymore. And he picked me. And so now I'm healing that belief that had happened in college and everywhere else that I wasn't worthy, that I wasn't worth picking because now these people who have these extreme gifts, who are very selective of their time, chose me, Mm. chose me because they saw something in me. And like, there's something very empowering about that. And this man doesn't have time for anyone. And he had time for me and he made sure to spend two hours on end with me and teach me and love me and made his doctors work with me. He did all my treatments for free. He gave me all the medicine for free. He did everything. He stayed on the phone with me and he just really helped me understand what it was that I was going through. And so like going through that and like learning different healing modalities. And I just kind of went through these processes. I started taking the MS medication. I was allergic to the MS medication. So that was a whole production. And so I did stay off medication for a long time, but last year I had the worst healthier. They thought I was progressive. I mess. They thought like I was it was just, it was insane. And like, I had Rocky Mountain spotted fever. I had the worst type of asthma you could possibly have. I had anemia so bad that I had to get infusions. My MS is getting worse. And then last year, I finally just listened to everyone that told me to take a break. And I took a fucking break. Mm. I took a break. I stopped trying to heal people because I had healing gifts. I stopped trying to read people because I had reading gifts. I stopped trying to get different types of jobs because I could. I just stopped listening to everybody. And I took a break. I finally slept. I did do my own healing because I I kept trying to do my own healing and I kept failing and I was so miserable because I was healing people out of like, I help people wake up out of a coma. I help people with paralysis and I can't help myself. And I felt like it was such a twisted joke from the universe. But since last year, I took a whole break. I just slept. I literally can't tell you this whole big thing. I slept. I said no to everybody. I said no to everybody. I listened to myself <clears throat> I just meditated and I sat and this year I no longer have anemia. It went away. My asthma is almost gone. Um, And I just got my MS results back from my last MRI and there is a mild improvement, which is medically impossible. And so I'm on this journey. Sorry, I'm going to And now it's so beautiful. Because now I get to tell people that the best way to help yourself is to just rest. The best way to help yourself is to allow yourself to feel what you fucking feel. Mm -hmm. Like not this toxic positivity, not this bombardment, but to cry, to really cry, to really just lay into it. Because the minute I did that, all the healing things that I had done for myself had a chance to integrate in my body. And I always compare it to yoga because with yoga, they say, even if you do the whole thing, if you don't do savasana, the laying down part Mm -hmm, at the end, mm -hmm. the whole yoga program is negated. And that's how life is. No matter how much you integrate and how much you learn and how much you do, you don't take time to rest and really get it into your system. It's, it's just fair weather, right? It's fair weather. You have Mm -hmm. to take time to stabilize it, to make it foundational, to sit with it. Like you really have to get it to get, like get it into your system. And now 
because I cried, I don't have tears left. Like I've done it. I've done it. I don't have tears. I don't have left pain pending. And I always tell people this, like express your emotions Mm. so that your body doesn't have to physically present them. Because that's half of it. Your, your mind has a longer shelf life than your body. And so once your mind is just totally loaded, it has to give it to your body and your body's going to go through these things. And it was in my body getting sick that it was like, it was like a compass to my destiny. Do you know what I mean? Like, yep. because I, if I never got sick. I would have never realized like the power of listening to it, how much your body talks to you. I've never been a healer. I hated yoga growing up. I hated meditation. I hated all this. Now I teach it and I know the power of it. And I get to tell people your diagnosis isn't forever. It's just for now. And it's about accepting it, not owning it. Because the minute you accept it, you can do the things you need to do to heal it every single day. The future is not set in stone. It's fluid. And every day that you make a choice to help you, you make a choice to get better or you make a choice to get worse, right? It's whatever it is. And that split second, you make a choice for you. The universe sends you reinforcements to help you. I feel like that's a quote. That's a great quote right there. Thank you. that's That's a great quote right there. I mean, Sheila, you've, you've, you've been through so much and it's incredible to to see where you're where, where you're where you have come and where you are going. Um, I think the most important part is for like the people that are listening to the this episode right now and that have been through a similar situation as you in regarding to the sexual assault and stuff like that because like you said, it, it was like, it was like a, a movie or like that, like, like a, you know, CSI, whatever. Mm-hmm. The fact that you kept pushing and kept using your voice, because it's like, you hear it all the time. Women are just, they just don't speak about it until the very last minute. So what mm-hmm. kind of like, I don't, I don't want to say tips, but what, I, I, what kind of things can you say to these women that it ha- like they've dealt with this and they haven't spoken up yet. They're too afraid. They're still dealing with it. Like, what can you share with them? I think for them, one, listen to yourself, mm. honor yourself. Don't abuse yourself more because someone abused you. Mm. And I'm not saying I never force people to do what's out of their comfort zone, but at least talk to yourself if you're not going to talk to anybody else. Journal for yourself. Let it out because you deserve to be heard. And if you're not ready for other people to hear you, that's okay. But hear yourself because you have a responsibility to you. You deserve you. You deserve your love. You deserve your nurturing. You deserve your protection. You deserve your advocacy. And take it step by step. You can't push somebody to do something they're not comfortable with. And I, But I do think that no matter what, It's about knowing that you were not wrong. It is not your fault. Mm. It is never, it is not shameful. And no matter what people say and whether or not it makes other people uncomfortable, fuck them, Mm. fuck them. Because do you know how many people, I talked about it so much. It was just instinctual to me. And maybe that was my life path because I never thought to not talk about it. Mm. And a lot of people told me when I was talking about it, like, she'll, you make people uncomfortable. Like she'll, like, you're just kind of a Debbie Downer. Like you're such a Debbie Downer. I got raped. Like, what do you mean I'm a Debbie Downer? Like, no, I'm not. And I think there's such a power in speaking and you might not think it's anything, but like one in three or one in four women get raped and they get raped by someone they know. It's never someone 
it, very rarely is it someone in an alley. Now, very rarely is it someone that's random. It's always someone in your family and someone you know. It's someone that you admire usually mm-hmm. that can do that to you. It's someone who's integrated into your life and you never know who that is. And so when you speak about it, and you speak openly, it puts a boundary on them because they know they're not going to get away with it. Because the more people that speak up, because people that do it, they like to be in power and they know their power can be stripped away with from them. The more that people speak about it openly and courageously with no inhibitions because they know they could get caught. The more people, and like, I always get upset about this. Like, look how many people joke about rape. If you feel uncomfortable, say something Mm -hmm. because it's never funny. It's never funny. And even if the people that like, Oh, I like dark humor, like, okay, you might know that you wouldn't do this, but someone that's clinically unstable thinks you just gave them validation to commit those crimes. So when you speak about it, know that that is your justice. Every time you speak about it is your justice. I know how hard it is to fight the system. I know how hard it is for what people say, but I also know every time I share my story, there's always someone that tells me that happened to me too. Mm -hmm. So for all the people that told me to shut up and all the people that told me I made them uncomfortable, the one person or the three people or whoever, however many people told me because you said something, I feel comfortable talking about it too, are worth it Mm -hmm. because you will have a tribe of people who get it. You are not alone and you will never know that you're not alone until you take off your mask. So be courageous in taking off your mask. You don't have to fake it for anyone. Being real teaches other people how to be real. Being real gives other people permission to live in their truth and being real is how you heal. And that is your justice. I feel like... (laughs) I feel like you just gave us a lesson. <laughs> like, there's so many, there's so many quote unquote, as we call it, gems on Clubhouse that you just threw in there. But for like all seriousness though, but I think you definitely opened some some people's eyes that are, are are dealing with that right now because it's so important to use your voice with those certain when when those things happen. And you are an incredible advocate for so many reasons. And I I, I encourage you to keep using your voice because like you, you your message is just inspiring. And mm-hmm. oh, sorry, keep no, 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 go, go, go. What were you gonna say? Because I, I was gonna say, like, when you use your voice, you heal energetically, mm-hmm. you heal, and it's okay. There's no so when you file a complaint or you file it, you know, in the for the judicial system, there's a statute of limitations. There's none for expressing your pain. Mm. And I feel like we feel like it happened so long ago, so I can't talk about it now. But there isn't that. You talk about it however many times you talk about it because there's so many layers of it. There's so many layers of healing. And like for nobody else but you, like I know a lot of people feel like if I talk about it, I'm going to die. But it's really important to know that every time you talk about it, you release the clenches of that trauma. You are not going to die. You are safe now. And you create more safety for you by talking about it and expressing it. And every time you cry about it, you release another level of it. You have to go through the layers of grief and no one has to tell you how or why or what to do about it. You need to go fucking break plates and like 
whatever you need to do, then do it in a safe space. Do whatever is safe for you and don't ever let anybody tell you what's going to make you feel safe. You listen to yourself, sit with yourself and know that your emotions will not kill you. Your emotions will empower you. I know it feels daunting and it feels terrifying that, oh my God, if I step into my emotions, I'm going to drown. You're going to rise. That water will let you float above it. You float when you express it. You drown when you suppress it. So let it out. Yep. Yep. I, I feel like I can literally like just listen to you all day. I really do. I really, really do. Cause you speak so much truth. Um, so lastly, where can everybody find you? Like share all the little, like the social media stuff that you, that you have right now. Cause I'm going to put it in the show notes, but share it right now. Oh, thank you. So it's Sheel Buta, S-H-E-E-L, Buta, B as in boy, H-U-T-A. And that's on Facebook, Instagram, shielbuta.com is my website. I'm redoing it. I was overzealous with it. That is one of my problems. So <laughs> um, but yeah, that's on everything on Twitter, on Clubhouse. Um, I'm on all of them. I'm going to start a YouTube channel, Heal with Sheel. I'm going to start um, also an Instagram page and probably a podcast as well with yes. meditation. So yes. I'm on the process of stepping into my power and using my voice yes. and doing it for me. And so I'm really excited about it. And just Sheel Buta and you'll find all the things there. I love it. I love it. And Sheel, I just love you. I adore you. And I can't wait to like physically see you soon. Now that we, we don't live, we live so close. We live so close to each other. But if you guys, if you guys enjoyed this episode, please tag us. We'll share it on our pages. We'll send you lovely DMs. And I just love you so much. I love you so much. Thank you so much for thinking of me and letting me have this space to speak about my story and always being such a safe space for me. I love you. Of course. I love you too. And I will see you around on the clubhouse.